NBC World News had a story a few years ago about a guy who traveled to Germany, and while he was there, or traveled to England from Germany, rather, and while he was there, he wanted to learn English. So he took some English classes at Holy Trinity Church. While he was in the church, he saw that there was a Bible there, an antique Bible, uh, 200 years old, and he was just amazed by it. He, he was so very impressed with this beautiful Bible, so much so that he decided that he, when no one was looking, would take that Bible and keep it for himself. He took the Bible, uh, took it home back to Germany, and recently, uh, when this story was written, he said that he, every time he walked by it, he just is beautiful, even though it was beautiful, he was just overwhelmed with the sense of guilt. And every time, you know, day after day, he would walk by it, he would be so very guilty that finally he decided he would package it up and mail it back to Holy Trinity Church. Here's a side note, though. He mailed it back 42 years after he took it. <laughs> so 42 years had passed, day after day after day, he felt guilty over this Bible. At the risk of stating the obvious, the Eighth Commandment, which was inside that Bible, says, thou shalt not steal. You should not steal. That's the commandment we're looking at today. What it means, of course, to steal and, and how that impacts us. We're continuing this series. We've got this week, two more after this. On the Ten Commandments, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments and how they're a blueprint for a morally excellent society. Uh, we believe that God gave us these commandments so that we would know how to live a life that's pleasing to Him, know how to live a life that is a moral life, a fulfilling life. We believe that the Ten Commandments give us those guidelines, and they can be divided into two categories. If you'll remember, the first four deal with our relationship to God, how to love Him, relate to Him. The last six deal with how to love others and relate to others. And certainly the Eighth Commandment deals with that, right? I mean, if I love other people, then I'm going to respect their personal property. I'm not going to steal from them, regardless of whether I know them or not, or how close I am to them. I'm going to respect them, and I'm going to respect their stuff. So the Eighth Commandment deals with that. The, Eighth Commandment, the Ten Commandments tell us, how to live a life that's pleasing to God, and that's how we know that they are just as relevant today as they were the day God gave them to Moses. They, after we're saved, teach us as believers, they guard us against the world's wrong road, and they guide us on God's right road. And so we know the Ten Commandments give us guardrails for life. Uh, the Ten Commandments were never meant to save us, they are meant to show us our need for salvation. They point us to Jesus, and that is why we should always place the Ten Commandments right beside the gospel. Uh, they show us the right way to live, and they keep us from living the wrong way. So instead of usually we look at the negative and positive of, each, of, of most of the commandments, but instead of doing that this week, we're going to look at how this commandment shows us how to avoid the wrong road and stay on the right road. So the wrong road would be to steal, which is motivated by instant gratification. We want things now. We want it the way we want it. We want it now. So that's the wrong road. But the right road is going to be God's people should be honest. We should be trustworthy. We should be able to be trusted. And so if I steal, then obviously I cannot be trusted. So we want to stay on the right road. And this commandment, as well as others, shows us how to do that. Have you ever had anything stolen from you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we all have, I'm sure. Now, you may not want to raise your hand with this next one, but have you ever stolen anything from anybody else? You may think you haven't. You may have, and you know you have. Uh, but there are, all of us can fall in, as we're going to see, before this is over with, we all are considered thieves in terms of our relationship to Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to look at that this morning and how that applies to each and every one of us. So how should I view my stuff? How does God view my stuff? Does he view it positively? Does he view it negatively? How should I view other people's stuff? We're going to look at all of that. God has an opinion on that. He is not anti-stuff, but he shows us how to have the right perspective on my stuff, but not only my stuff, on other people's stuff. We live in a, 
a stuffed and stuff-filled society, don't we? We all have stuff, cars, houses, televisions. I mean, you name it, some of us probably have it. We've got, I've got, you know, moving twice in the past two years, I've realized we had more stuff than I ever thought we could possibly need. And some of it we didn't need, and that's why we gave it away. But we all have stuff. There's no shortage of stuff in our lives. But how am I supposed to view that? How am I supposed to manage that? How am I supposed to view other people's stuff? The Eighth Commandment deals with all of this. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about personal property and possessions. And this begins with how we value personal property. Uh, Should we and how much should we value personal property? Here's the reality, and this is not a bad thing, okay? It sounds bad, but it's not. God has put us together in such a way that part, not all, but part of our dignity is wrapped up in us acquiring and managing the things that we own, possessions. God made us managers over things. He gave us things, entrusted things to us. And part of our dignity is wrapped up in that. Shouldn't be all of it, and it shouldn't be your self-worth, but part of our dignity is wrapped up in that. And so when we invade another person's private property, and we steal from him or her, we're not just sinning against that person, we're sinning against God who gave that stuff to them. And so it changes our view of things. There are a lot of parables where Jesus addresses possessions, but think about this. There's only one where he tells the person to give away or sell everything that they have. Um, and, And the rest of them, the parables primarily deal with how to manage those things. Jesus isn't anti possession. And in that one instance, that man was taking all of his value, basically his possessions, not basically, they were his idol. And so, so Jesus was saying, if you want to follow me, you got to get rid of that idol in your life. For the, for the rest of the, the parables, when Jesus talks about money, it's assumed that we're going to have possessions, money or whatever, but the praise or the condemnation comes as a result of how we manage those things. They're about how we deal with them, how we view them, how much value they have in our lives or how much value we take from those things. So we need to first understand that personal property is a trust. God gives us what we have in trusting those things to us. In Psalm 24, 1, David says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. It all belongs to him. In January of 1989, um, y'all remember that show BL Striker? I don't remember it very, very much, but it was on years ago and, and they were filming in Palm, West Palm Beach, Florida, and they wanted to use somebody's house, their property to do a scene where cars were going to be crashing and all this sort of stuff. And so these folks in this house agreed to let them use their, their yard to, and their, the street in front of their house, understanding that, again, car crashes, explosions, all of these things would be taking place. Well, they started filming the scene, explosions, they're blowing up their yard, the people are watching it, they're enjoying it. Well, somewhere along the way, someone called the production company, come to find out it was the actual owner of the house, who was in New York at the time, and had no idea that this was going on in his yard. The people that were there were not the owners. They were just staying there, and they were like, sure, you can blow up the yard. Why not? But the owner had no clue. They didn't go through the proper channels. You know, sometimes we treat our stuff that way. We treat it however we want, when the reality is it's really not ours. I mean, it's, we've been entrusted. They've been, we, we've been given these things by God to manage. And so whenever we treat our possessions or anybody else's possessions in a, a manner that's not honoring, then we're treating God that way. We're treating his stuff that way because ultimately it's all his. And we, a lot of times, live our lives under this mistaken impression that everything we have belongs to us when the reality is it's his. So we need to live our lives knowing that God will call us into account for the way that we handle the things that he gave to us. We're going to be held accountable for how we manage the things that he gives us. So we need to understand that it's a trust and personal property is also temporary. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away. 
In Psalm 90, verse 10, we're reminded our lives are last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years, even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Temporary. James says in James 4, 14, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. And so it, it's, it's here for a little while, but then it's gone. And it, and it passes quickly. I mean, all of this is temporary. You know, our souls will go on forever. But even these bodies our temporary, everything in our lives. So we need to value personal property, but we need to keep it in its proper perspective. We need to have it in in the right perspective. If we do that, it's going to be easier to respect the possessions of others, which is number two. We need to respect the possessions of others. The commandment, plain and simple, you shall not steal. Plain and simple, that's the commandment, the eighth commandment. So what's stealing? How do we define stealing? Well, stealing is to honestly take what belongs to someone else and to make it yours. It's taking something that you know doesn't belong to you and making it your own. So how do we do this? How does this play out? Um, You know, as I said at the beginning of this message, and we're going to see even more throughout the rest of it, that we are all thieves. I mean, we've all stolen something. Maybe it was something physical, but we, we can all be put into this classification. You know, there are 100, over 130 synonyms for the word steal. And, and in, the, in a similar way, there, there are almost as many different ways you can steal something. So the obvious, I think, is stealing tangible things, stealing something that's physical that belongs to somebody else. And there are a lot of different ways even you can do that. But when we think of stealing, we think of taking something that's someone's personal property, money, uh, possession, something like that, and making it our own. And there are different ways that we can do that. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different, different forms that this takes. There was a story, a lady, you know, you've, you've seen uh, men or women, but a lot of times mom carrying their babies around in those little reverse backpacks, right? Well, there was a, a grocery store where there was a lot of young families in the neighborhood and there were constantly moms coming in this grocery store with these backpacks. But, but one lady stood out above the rest of them. She had a sign on this little reverse backpack that said, this baby is known to shoplift. If you see it taking something, let mom know. She didn't, you know, she's not looking. The baby's down here just taking stuff off the shelf and stick it in the backpack, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways we steal stuff. Sometimes we might not even know we're stealing it. We don't understand what we're doing, but we're hopefully going to bring some clarification to that. There are basically two categories when we talk about stealing. One is stealing tangible things, as I've already mentioned. Deliberate stealing. Stealing physical possessions. Erwin uh, Lutzer talks about a hotel in New York City that released some numbers about things that were stolen. In one year's time, in this hotel, they lost 38,000 spoons that were stolen. Some of them maybe were thrown away, I guess. But uh, uh, 355 silver coffee pots in a year's time. 15,000 finger bowls, and you know, the guy in Germany wasn't the only one, 100 Bibles, which those two, by the way, have the Eighth Commandment in them as well. Uh, but you know, if, if they took them, I guess, to, if they, to, to read, that, that's fine. Maybe it helped them. But Lutzer said that 75%, you know, people would have things stolen from them in the hotel and make an insurance claim. 75% of those insurance claims are at least somewhat fraudulent. Uh, he says what happens is, is people get something stolen from them and they file an insurance claim and something clicks in their head and they say, hey, this is an opportunity for me to make some money. You know, everybody should have an opportunity to get something for free and this is mine, so I'm going to take advantage of it. So 75% of those claims, at least they, they, they fudge the numbers just a little bit. They add a few things. They pad the list a little bit. And, you know, hey, it's my opportunity. Well, no, that's, that's stealing. I mean, just as much as someone stole that from you, if you're going to lie about it, that's stealing. Examples of stealing tangible stuff, robbery, that's obvious. Shoplifting, I mentioned that. Uh, there are about 27 million shoplifters in our nation today. One in every 11 people have shoplifted or do shoplift. More than 10 million people have been caught shoplifting in the past five years. A lot of shoplifters out there, including that baby, I guess. Extortion is another way we steal tangible things. Embezzlement, 
racketeering, identity theft. I've shared with you, I've had my identity stolen before. It was a nightmare, and it happens. Every two seconds, there's identity theft takes place in our country. Every two seconds, somebody's identity is stolen in some way, shape, form, or fashion. That's theft. There's also, the second category is stealing intangible things. You know, there's actual physical, tangible things, but there, it's also possible to steal intangibles. And this is probably where most of us will find ourselves guilty or we have been guilty. Um, how do we do this? Well, deception is a way that we steal intangible things. Did you know that the Hebrew word for deceive literally means to steal a person's heart? You're stealing their heart when you deceive them. Deception's a way that we steal so what, what forms does this take? Well, if you own a business, deceiving customers or salesmen, deceptive sales tactics. This, you know, this isn't new. It's been around for over 3,000 years. Amos 8, verse 5. They overcharge. They use false measures. They fix the scales to cheat government, government, uh, customers. They were fixing the scales so that they could cheat customers out of their money. Sounds pretty current, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen that. You know, cheating customers. Modern day examples, when a repairman makes unnecessary repairs, a doctor orders unnecessary tests, a salesman skips over the fine print. Uh, there are a lot of different ways we deceive people. Uh, deceptive sales tactics, deceiving the government would qualify here too. You're underpaying on your taxes, cheating on your taxes. That's deceptive. In Romans 13, 6 and 7, Paul says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. God placed them there, allowed them to be there. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Deceiving the government would also include making false claims like disability, false claims, disability, things like that. Anytime you're deceiving someone, then that's, that's stealing. Another example is defrauding. You know, we've talked about employers, uh, you know, we could talk, talk about employees defrauding their employers. You know, we'll talk about employers in a minute, but our business owners, we've already mentioned, you know, defrauding customers. But, you know, if you're an employee, you could defraud your employer, you know, um, you know, fudging that, padding that expense account a little bit, um, stealing time. We talk about, you know, we think about, I guess, probably stealing actual stuff, and that is a problem, people stealing office supplies and things of that nature in the office. I mean, we, we've seen that. According to U.S. Department of Commerce, employee theft costs businesses overall about $50 billion annually. I mean, the, the number of uh, 75% of all employees, it says, steal at some point. And half of those do it over and over and over again, according to statistics, surveys. As a matter of fact, one of every three businesses fails every year as a result of employee theft. So, I mean, this is a big problem. And that's probably what we think of here. But, you know, this would also include, you know, stealing time, like, uh, you know, or padding an expense account, doing personal business on the clock when you don't have permission to do that. And this is a matter of integrity. But anytime we do that then we're, get, we're guilty of stealing. It's just a form of theft. It's best to follow Paul's example in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as some, something done for the Lord and not for men. So don't defraud your employers. Employers, the, delaying payments to your employees. That's an example of defrauding. The other way around. Leviticus 19.13 speaks to this. Don't take advantage of any, anyone. Don't hold back wages of someone you've hired, not even for one night. Defaulting on loans is another way we defraud. In Psalm 37, verse 21, David says, The wicked man borrows and does not repay, but the righteous one is gracious and giving. So if you're going to borrow money, make sure you can pay for it first. Make sure you can pay the payments. Then there's defrauding God. You know, stewardship is one of the foundational principles here, all right, in terms of the Eighth Commandment. Because, again, going back to how do I view possessions? Well, if I view things as belonging to God, that's going to change the way I look at those things. If it's not mine and it's His, then that's going to change how I value them and how I manage them. It's also going to change the way I look at other people's stuff 
and how much I value other people's stuff. If it's not theirs, if it belongs to God, doesn't matter who it belongs to or who's managing it, ultimately it's his. And so that should change the way that I look at things. Someone said in capitalism, the money is yours to do with what you want. In socialism, it belongs to the state, and the state uses it how it wants. In Christianity, it's God's, and it must be used as God directs. It changes the way I look at things. In Malachi verse 3, 8, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth tithes and contributions. So if we're going to talk about theft, you have to talk about tithing. You have to talk about stewardship because of what that verse says. If I don't tithe, then I'm, I'm guilty of theft. I'm robbing God, according to Malachi 3.8. And he goes on in verse 9. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, God says, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. It hasn't been that long since we talked about this. We went through this on Wednesday night. But, he, but the reason this is so important and how it relates to the Eighth Commandment is because when we break the Eighth Commandment, what we're really saying is that we can't trust God to provide for our needs which is really the issue behind refusing to tithe. You don't trust God to meet your needs, but God says, listen, I will not only take care of you, I will bless you beyond measure. Test me in this, he says. But when I refuse to do that, or if I steal something from somebody else that I want, I'm saying what God does for me is not good enough. But the reality is, is the opposite. If we trust God... If we tithe, we'll find out that 90% his way will go a lot longer than 100% my way. But also, if I trust him and I, I trust him to provide for my needs and I become satisfied and content with what I have, I'll find out that I'll get more blessing out of that than I would anything that I would take by force. Because, see, God has a way. You think about the story of the five loaves and the two fish, where God fed you know, over 5,000 people, probably between 10 and 15,000 when everything was said and done. But, but he took those few pieces of food and what did he do? He multiplied it. I don't know how he did it. I have no clue how he did it. I picture in my mind him taking, and as he's just breaking it up, it just keeps going and going and going. I mean, I, I don't know how he did it, but I know he did it. Because God has a way of taking what we have, whatever it is, and making it into something incredible, uh, whether that's us or our possessions. Now, I want to kind of try to show you how this works with this little experiment. Um, we're going to say that this, this little solution, don't worry, I bought this at the Dollar Tree. There was nothing in it, so I wasn't drinking anything out of this, just in case you were wondering. But I've got this little solution. We're going to say that this represents God, okay? Not that we're putting God in a bottle, but this represents Him, all right? And so He, I mean, He's all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants. And so we're going to say that this represents Him. But over here, I've got another little concoction that I I'm going to work on here, and this is going to represent our stuff, all right? Um, whatever I put in here represents whatever we can gather ourselves, which we know some people are pretty good at that. Some people are a lot better at gathering stuff than other people, but we work hard to get our stuff, don't we? I mean, we, we work day in and day out. You know, maybe it's you're working to get a car, so you have your car. You work to pay your house payments, so you have your house payment. Um, you work to put food on the table. We all want to take care of our families, and the list goes on and on and on, right? Even down to not just stuff we need, but stuff that we want. And then once you have those things, you have to work to maintain them, right? Day in and day out, working, toiling, working, just to keep it all together. And that's how we're creating this little solution here. So we're going to say that whenever I get this all stirred up, that this is going to be our, all of our possessions, right? All of our stuff that we've worked day in and day out trying to maintain and trying to keep. And God lets us do that, right? He gives us all this stuff, and he lets us maintain all of this stuff. And I really hope this is going to work, but we're going to find out in just a minute. And it is a daily struggle, right? Day in, day out, we struggle to maintain these things. All right. Now... We have a choice. We can either keep it, you know, however we keep it, 
hoard it, spend it, do with it whatever we want, or we can trust God with it. We can recognize that it all belongs to Him, and we can treat it that way. We can tithe, we can give, we can pay our bills, we do what we do to manage our property well, and in doing that, we're giving it to God, and we find out something that's pretty cool. He takes what we have, and He doesn't just maintain it, he makes it into a whole lot more. Still going. But that's what God does, right? I mean, he, he has this ability because he's God, of course, just like those five loaves, those two fish. He has this ability to take just a little bit and to stretch it farther than we could ever imagine. Now, we could go around the room here today and tell our story, each of us who have trusted God, who have been faithful to tithe, who have had the proper view of stewardship, and we could tell our story about somehow, some way, some point in our life, we couldn't make a, a payment on a bill or we didn't have enough money in the bank, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, not out of nowhere, God took over and he provided in a way that we could never imagine. We've all got that story, right? That's because God can take just a little bit and make it into something incredible. We can work all day long, every day, seven days a week, and still not stretch what we have as far as God can. And that, that's, that's how this all relates to the Eighth Commandment. It is, do I trust God enough to provide for my needs? Do I trust Him enough to take what I have that really belongs to Him and to meet all of the needs that I have? I mean, it's an issue of faith. And it's so very important that we view our stuff properly and view it as belonging to him because, again, that affects how we view not only what we have, but everything that other people have as well. Tithing says, I trust God 100%, so I'm going to give him his 10%. It all belongs to him. Destroying is another way we break the, the Eighth Commandment. This includes, you know, this, another one of those intangibles, and, the, and it takes a lot of forms. Uh, destroying innocence, the innocence of a child. If you destroy the innocence of a child, then you're guilty of theft. In Matthew 18, 6, Jesus talks about this. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This could be destroying innocence, could be destroying somebody's good name. We talked a few weeks ago about the, the importance of a name in Hebrew culture. But let's face it, in our culture, names represent character, represents more than the actual name. When you think of, here's somebody's name, you think of what you know about them, their reputation. And some, for some people, that's all they have. And so anything that I would do to destroy somebody's good name, then I'm stealing from them. I, that's, that's theft. Proverbs 22.1, a, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. It's more important than stuff. Favor is better than silver and gold. So how do we do this? Well, gossiping, innuendo, accusations. I mean, all of these evil reports, spreading evil things, bad things about people. Gossip is probably the most common. And let me tell you what gossip is, all right? Just give you my definition, not really original to me, but but here it is. This is when someone is so, gossip is when someone's so shallow that they have to make themselves look good by making somebody else look bad. They're so insecure themselves that they are going to make somebody else look bad so that they'll feel better about themselves. That's what gossip is. That's all that gossip is. And it is robbing somebody of their reputation. It steals someone's character. This also could be destroying somebody's joy in life. It's taking their joy. Maybe you feel bad, things aren't going well, somebody else is feeling good, so you're going to do what you can to take their joy. Now, this is where this intersects with the family, you know, because it's, it's very, you know, parents, we, we can easily steal the joy of our kids if we're not careful. This is what, part of what the Bible's talking about. In Colossians 3.21, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. You know, we can discourage our kids, but it has to do with husbands and wives. You know, the roles within the family. If we honor those roles, then we'll be an encouragement to one another. The roles we talked about a few weeks ago, but if we don't, we can steal joy. Wives, remember you're a helpmate to your husband. That's not a demeaning term. The same word is used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Greek equivalent of that. 
Um, it's an important role. But when you don't fulfill your role, you can be in discouragement to your husband. Proverbs 19.3, a quarrelsome wife is like constant dripping. And every, every disgruntled husband's favorite verse, Proverbs 21.9, better to live in the corner of a house and of an attic than to live, than to share a house with a nagging wife. All right? I'd like to quote that verse, but let's put the shoe on the other foot. It may be the reason your wife is acting that way is because you're not fulfilling your role. We have a role too. To be the leaders of our homes. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You're not a dictator, you're a servant leader. To the point to where you would be willing to give your life for your wife, your family. But those roles are important. If we don't fulfill our roles, we can rob the members of our family of joy that God wants them to have. We can also steal other people's joy by not, by not obeying 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. The critical and judgmental spirit of many people in the church today is robbing a whole lot of people of joy. You know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm critical and I'm judgmental, then I'm stealing your joy. And listen, we call sin what it is. We hold each other accountability, but you have to be careful. Because if you're always critical all the time, always judgmental, then you're stealing the joy of people around you. Perfect example of this going on right now. I know probably most of you have heard of the conversion of Kanye West, right? I mean, it's all over the news. You know, he's accepted Christ. He's holding these Sunday services. Now, here's the deal. You know, I'm reading all these articles. I'm looking up all these videos, watching these videos. I have no idea if he's legitimate or not. I don't know his heart. I know what he's saying sounds good. He's doing some good things. I know that he's being discipled by a pretty well-known, solid pastor. Uh, so those are all good signs. But here's what bothers me about this. I watched a video the other day, 45 minutes long, five college-age students spent 45 minutes giving their opinion as to why this was all just fraud. Why they thought there's no way this guy could be saved. 45 minutes criticizing what he was doing and giving their opinion on why they don't think this is real. Again, time will tell. I don't know. But what I do know is that Christians, we are some of the best in the world at wounding our own. We get some kind of joy out of stealing somebody else's joy. And, and, and I'm seeing all these articles about, hey, this can't be real. He's not. Here's a thought. Y'all just tell me what you think. Instead of giving our opinions as to why we don't think he's come to Christ, why don't we pray for the man? Because if this is real, he's got a platform to reach people that none of us could reach. And so if it is real, God could do something pretty incredible. So instead of criticizing, being critical, judgmental, let's pray for him. Pray that this is real and that God uses him. Because wow, what an incredible thing that would be. But, but, but our tendency is to be critical. But if we do that, we're guilty of stealing. We're guilty of stealing joy. The attitude of stealing is a contemporary problem. Mark Mitchell says this, what drives people to steal? He says, some people steal for the thrill of it. Some people steal because of a sense of entitlement. You know, I have the right, if I can get it, if I can take it, it's mine. I have that right. I should have it. Some people steal because they're lazy. Some people steal because they think everyone does it. Some people steal because they know they won't get caught. Some steal due to pervasive greed and selfishness that's part of our consumer culture. We are. We're, I mean, we're born selfish, self-centered. And that it's, it's bred. It's encouraged in our culture. We live in a taker culture, plain and simple. An age of entitlement. The idea of being a servant is kind of foreign. But Proverbs 15, 27 says, The one who profits dishonestly troubles his household. You know, the world said, if my needs are not being met, then I'll just take what I need so that my needs will be met. But Exodus 20 verse 5 says, you shall not steal. Don't steal. But if my image and my self-worth are wrapped up in my possessions and I don't have what I think I need, then no commandment's going to keep me from doing that. 
If I see something that I think I need to be valuable, I don't, it's not going to matter what the Bible says, then I'm going to take it. If my value is wrapped up in that, so how, you know, what, what's, what's at the heart of this? You know, no commandment against stealing is going to stop me if I think I need that. There, a story that Zig Ziglar told about a man from 1887, a man who was in the grocery store buying some turnip greens. And he paid for the turnip greens, $20 bill, the cashier took it, and her hands were wet from getting the turnip greens, and as she was putting it in the register, she noticed some of the ink came off on her hands. Well, this, here's the thing. This is a guy she had known her whole life, very respected man in the community, very respected. And she thought, there's no way this guy could be a counterfeiter. I've known him my whole life. Well, she went ahead and gave him his change. He left the store, but she, she realized, I mean, the ink was coming off. She knew it couldn't be real, so she reported it to the police. They went to his house, got a search warrant, went to his house, searched his attic, and found that he, he was an artist, very good artist, and he had been painting $20 bills. Here's the thing, though. They also found he was a very talented painter. They also found three other paintings in his attic. Well, they decided in order to help him pay for some of these debts that he had acquired using counterfeit money, they decided to sell these three paintings. And this is 1887 money, not, you know, today's money. Each of those paintings sold together for about $16,000 in 1887, over $5,000 apiece. That's a lot of money today. It's a whole lot more in 1887. Here's the kicker. It took him almost as long to paint a $20 bill as it did to paint those paintings. Now think about that for a minute. $20 versus over $5,000. So this guy, he thought that he had to do this to get what he needed. In reality, the only person he was stealing from was himself. You know, if we think we need things and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get those things, in the end, the person we're robbing the most is ourselves. Because we're not trusting God to meet our needs. We're not trusting God to take care of our needs. We shouldn't steal, plain and simple. No commandment in and of itself is going to keep us from doing that. So why should we not steal? Kenny Qualls gives a list of reasons Christians don't steal. Number one, it's a sin against God. That should be enough in and of itself, right? But it's not for most people. So here's some other reasons. It destroys my witness and it destroys my relationships with others. It's another reason we shouldn't steal. It harms the gospel. I mean, it's going to affect my ability to share the gospel. And as Christians, we should be concerned about the gospel and the glory of God. God is greatly concerned with his glory and we should as well. We should glorify his name, not cause people to stumble. Number four, we don't want to be controlled by greed. We shouldn't steal because ultimately we'll be controlled by greed. Another reason Christians don't steal is we love others and we want to respect their property. If I love God, I'm going to love what he loves. And if I love what he loves, I'm going to love other people, which means I'm going to respect their stuff. We are content. We don't steal because we're content and grateful for what we have. If you want your life to change, if you struggle with discontentment, if you want your life to change, stop focusing on what you don't have and start thanking God for what you do have. Now listen, I know sometimes that's hard, especially when that, the things you do have, when that's a small list. But we need to be thankful for what we have. We don't steal because we want to get things the right way. I mean, we, we want to be honest people. We want to get things the right way. Another reason we don't steal is because we trust God to supply all of our needs. If we really trust God, we've talked about that, then we'll trust him to supply our needs and to multiply or what we have. We don't steal because we want to be like Jesus, not like Satan. Satan's the thief, the thief, ultimate, the original thief and the best thief. Jesus said in in John 10, 10, the thief comes, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We want to be like Jesus. You know, Christians, Christ followers are not to steal. We are to be people of honesty and generosity who work hard and trust God to supply all of our needs. That should describe us. And that, that is reason enough. I mean, the fact that God says don't do it should be reason enough, but that's a reason enough for us not to steal. And that's why we need to make generosity a priority. What's the antidote 
to coveting, to greed, stealing, theft, generosity is the antidote. Winston Churchill said this. He said, we make a living by what we get, but but we make a life by what we give. We invest in other people. Acts 20, 35, Paul is quoting Jesus. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Luke 6, 38 says, give. We're to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave more than any of us have ever given. Why is giving so important? Well, one reason is the needs of others depend on it. I mean, God builds in a system for meeting the needs of those who don't have enough, and that's for people who love God to give to others that don't have enough. Um, the Eighth Commandment can be summed up pretty clearly in one verse, Ephesians four twenty-eight: The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Break that down. Don't steal. The thief must no longer steal. Stop stealing. Then... Do honest work, work hard, and then share with others. Give, share with people in need. You know, we've talked about how stewardship and the principle of stewardship are, uh, it says that we're called to be generous. I mean, if we, if we really tr- believe stewardship that it belongs to God, well, the, the principle that goes along with that is that we're to be generous. Jer- Jerry Bridges says that we can have three basic attitudes toward what we have. Three basic attitudes. One is theft, which we're talking about today. Theft is what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Okay. The other is greed, which says what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. But the other is stewardship, which says what's mine is God's, I'll share it. You know, I'll, I'll give to those in need. I'll use what God blesses me with to bless other people. And as a church, we should follow the example of the churches in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. This is the Living Bible prayer, paraphrase. Now I want to tell you what God in his grace has done for the churches in Macedonia. Though they have been going through much trouble and hard times, they've mixed their wonderful joy with their deep pro- poverty, and the result has been overflowing giving of others. They didn't have much to begin with, but what they had, they wanted to share with others. Because they recognized it wasn't theirs anyway. It was God's. They gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And I can testify that they did it because they wanted to, and not because of nagging on my part, Paul says. They begged us to take the money so that they could share in the joy of helping Christians in Jerusalem. They just wanted the joy of helping other people. Best of all, they went beyond our highest hopes, for their first action was to dedicate themselves to the Lord and to us for whatever directions God might give them through us. They wanted to give, and we should follow their example. Also, the nature of grace demands that we be generous. Look at Romans 1.14. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and barbarians, Paul says, both to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. As I said before, we're all as guilty as thieves. We are sinners and we're all guilty. Martin Luther said, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of great thieves. So if none of us is innocent regarding this commandment, then... How should we respond? What should we do about it? Well, when we think about all of the different ways this applies, the first step is to evaluate your own heart. You know, ask the Holy Spirit to show you, is there anything that you have or are struggling with? Is there something in your past that you haven't dealt with? Whether it's actually stealing something or stealing somebody's joy, one of those intangibles. Is there something that you struggle with today? Critical spirit, you know, gossip, any of those things. Actual theft, you know, tangible things. Is it something you're thinking about doing? You know, having trouble making, meeting, paying those bills. You know, things are tight. You're considering doing something maybe that's not, not right to get what you think you need. Search your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit. If there's something that needs to be dealt with, be honest about it. Be honest about your sin. Confession, confession of sin is just agreeing with God about what he already knows. It's agreeing with God about your sin. And then once you confess your sin, repentance has to take place. Repentance 
is a change in heart that results in a change of action. You know, I turn to God in confession, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me of my sin, and I'm going to move away from that never to return. You're doing it about face. So confess your sin to God, agree with Him about it, repentance, and then you can receive forgiveness for whatever it is that you're struggling with. But the key is to be honest with God about where you are. Confess it and turn to Him. And then if you have done something, if it's possible, you need to make restitution. If you've taken something from somebody, whether it's a physical thing or an emotional thing, an intangible thing, you need to make restitution. Just like Zacchaeus, when he came to Christ, what's the first thing he did? He paid back what he owed plus a whole lot more. He made restitution. And that's important. Forgiveness depends completely, though, on the grace of God. Not anything I do. Restitution doesn't earn me forgiveness. It's important. But it's all about the grace of God. The gospel is the undeserved gift of God's grace. And the gospel is the power of God to save anyone who will be saved. The great example of this is Jesus between two thieves, right? One thief mocked, one thief mocked him, the other one did what? He begged for forgiveness. You know, Jesus has always been for thieves. Not in the sense you think, but... He's always rooted for thieves. I'll never forget in seminary, I said I'd had something stolen from me. In seminary, I had my car stolen. Uh, we lived in an apartment complex in Metairie, Louisiana. And I had gone out. We had a dog at the time. And every morning, I would go out and walk the dog in the apartment complex area. And I usually parked in like one of two places. At the time, I was teaching a Bible study at a trailer park uh, one night a week. And the night before, I'd been out late teaching this Bible study. I'd gotten home late. I was tired. And, and I was walking the dog, and I saw an empty spot where I could have swore is where I parked my car. And I was looking at it. I was tired. It was early in the morning. I was sleepy. And, and so I walked around the apartment complex about two or three times just to make sure that I didn't park. Because I didn't want to call the police and then them come up and find my car parked, you know, somewhere else. And so I walked. And then I went inside. I got Mandy. I said, you got to come out here because I swear I think somebody's stolen my car. And I don't know. I want to make sure. So we walked around, sure enough. So here's the thing, okay? This car that I had, it was a Chevy Blazer, about a 1997, I think. And I had, had electrical problems. The, the, the entire time I owned that car, it was a disaster. Every time I turned around, something was breaking on it. I mean, every time I was having to have something fixed. And so the policeman comes, he takes the report, and he's like, Mr. Hayes, don't you worry. We're going, your, your car's going to show up somewhere. And I'm like, really? I just soon it didn't. I mean... Is there a way you can make that not happen? Because it was just a hassle. Every time I turned around, I was having to fix something about this car. So in a sense, I was rooting for the thieves. Sure enough, it never showed up. I think it ended up on a ship to South America somewhere. It was a port city, and a lot of times it was a whole ring of car thefts in that area during that time. But I was rooting for the thieves to get away. And I got to admit, my motives were not pure. Um, I just didn't want to deal with that car anymore. But you know, in a sense, Jesus roots for every thief. Not in the sense like I did, <laughs> hoping they'll get away with it and not pay for the consequences, never turn from their sin. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus roots for thieves in the sense that he hopes that they'll all come to him, confess their sin, and receive salvation. Because on that cross, next to him, that thief said what? He said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? He didn't say, okay, you go do this, 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 and this. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He gave the same promise to that thief that he gives to all of us thieves who are willing to come to him and receive his grace. The gospel is about grace. And if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus, we're going to experience grace. And then we're going to be willing to share that grace. The gospel is about us as thieves receiving forgiveness and then going out in search of other thieves who need forgiveness. The gospel is about love and mercy and grace that we don't deserve and not getting what we do deserve. But here's the thing. If you are not a child of God, there's a, there's a danger of another great theft taking place here in this room today. Danger of a really, really important, really big theft. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, do not let pride 
the sin, sin and pride, rob you of the greatest thing of all, and that's salvation in Jesus Christ. Satan will use pride. Your own background, oh, I could never be saved. God can't clean me up. He'll use those things to, to, to steal from you the joy of coming to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. God says, do not steal. And there are a number of ways that applies. But don't let Satan steal the joy of knowing Jesus and the joy of serving Jesus if you do know him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the commandments within your word. And Lord, we know that the only way we can follow these commandments is to first know you and belong to you. We can't do it in our own strength. We have to trust you with our lives. And you give us salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And so the first step to obedience in these commandments is to receive that gift of salvation that can only come from you. So I pray that if there's somebody here in this room today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would not allow Satan to steal the, the, the opportunity from them to come to know you, that they would come during this time of commitment and allow me to share with them how to make that most important decision they'll ever make, the decision to trust you with their lives. For the rest of us, those that know you, I pray that we would evaluate the many ways this applies to our lives. And if there's something that we struggle with or have struggled with in the past that we haven't dealt with, that we would confess that to you and get right with you and, and get right with those that we have, we have hurt, if that's necessary. That we would make sure that we value our things, other people's things, and other people because you, those things ultimately belong to you and those people belong to you. And you value people. That we would love what you love, and that's certainly people. God, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts in this time where we prepare to respond to your word, that you would show us the areas that we need uh, to, to allow you to work on, to submit to you, whatever it is that we need to do to respond faithfully to the word that we've heard, your word, I pray that we would do it now. Lord, thank you for giving us your grace and your mercy. The, the, the grace to be able to respond and to understand your word and the mercy to receive forgiveness instead of what we do deserve, and that's punishment. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage as we respond in this moment. Whatever it is you would have us to do, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for a time of commitment?